The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome in, everybody, to the first episode we're recording in 2023. It's not the first we're releasing, but it's the first we're recording. This is the first time we've decided to record all year. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But with Mothman being a two-parter, we were able to take a week off because I was on vacation and felt lazy. As one does from time to time, but this is fine. Yeah, I needed it. I needed it. So this week is not a Krakow tale. We had two Krakow tales in a row there. There's only so much Krakow tales one can handle in a row. It's true. It's true. I mean, I honestly can only handle one in my lifetime, and yet here we are. It's fine. This is fine. <laughs> Oh, that silence was heartbreaking. This is fine. This is fine. You know I'm joking. Of course, yes. But am I joking when I say you have no ears? Hmm. Tune in next time for the Krakow Tales on Mo Has No Ears. I have ears. (laughs) We'll cover that next time. And one of them works. Fair enough. No, when we record, I can't wear my hearing aid. So I have to wear my headphones and like... It feels off balance. Like, I feel this feels weird saying this, but like, I actually tilt my head to try to hear better. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it even easier for me to spread the conspiracy theory because I can just be like, Mo has to charge her ears. (laughs) I I don't need to specify. I mean, technically, I'm not wrong. Okay. Let's back up here because conspiracy theories are part of the channel. So how did this even get started? Because you have been saying I don't have ears for years and I don't know. I have no idea. The furthest back I can remember is you streaming and we someone, I don't know if it was me or someone else made the comment that you always wear the the headphones over the ear headphones and we have never seen your ears. So you may not even have ears. Yeah, but I've shown you like you've seen pictures of me with ears. And then that just escalated into nice special effects. Every Tuesday evening, I question my life choices. (laughs) Understandable. I'd be surprised if you didn't. (laughs) This is true. This is true. But... Aside from conspiracy theories about my ears, tonight we have another true crime story. And this one, actually, again, it is in Pennsylvania with a slight personal connection. I'm a little concerned as to what this personal connection might be. I work with someone now who, years before all of this happened worked with someone involved one day one day we're gonna we're gonna record an episode it's gonna be like i have another true crime tale this one's also pennsylvania based side note i'm on the run (laughs) they'll never find me no um (laughs) interview with a killer it's no longer the squonk and the hag (laughs) but no so it's interesting because 
uh, people as they learn, like in my, in I guess in my real life, I because I feel like the internet is still my real life because I live on the internet. But I feel like as people IRL find out that I do this true crime podcast and I have a passion for researching tr- crime, they're like, "Oh, I got a story for you." Oh, I got a story for you. So, uh, what a uh, tangent, but there's actually one that there was a murder in the house that my dad grew up in years after they moved out. This is how you get ghosts. Yeah, that is how you get ghosts. But my dad's like, you should find out what happened. And I don't, I love my dad. I do, but I don't think he understands that when I say that we do a true crime podcast where we research true crime, we're not solving. We're we're not literal detectives. Yeah, we're not solving a crime because this is an unsolved case. And I've been like doing a little bit of digging and stuff like that, but it's stuff like that. Like everyone's like, oh, you like true crime? Check out this thing. Oh, you like this? Check out that thing. And I know I was talking about another one at Christmas because that's what you talk about at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And my mom's like, oh, I know one of the victim's moms. I was like, oh, oh, oh. Fair, fair enough. That's why, yeah, that's why I have a lot of these slightly lesser known Pennsylvania cases, but they pique my interest because there is some sort of personal connection. There's something where somebody I know has told me about it. Somebody I know, you know, like with Stanley Detweiler, my my grandfather and my uncles um, did construction in the building it happened or in the apartment that it happened and you know things like that and then it just kind of pushes me to to look into them more so than something that you know happened around the world or happened in the 1800s or something like that like that stuff's fascinating to me but when it comes to really digging in it's the stuff that has like that slight personal connection and that's that's a good way to to find the more obscure things is if you happen to know people that, that were in or like know someone who was involved in in that stuff and they can like pass the story down to their children gather around kids here's the story about how i witnessed a murder oh god that's so creepy but yeah it's yeah it, it's one of those because i do like the I think we've talked about this before. I like the stuff that I haven't heard before, which is why I like the stuff that you bring to the table, because I've never heard of most of this stuff. Fair enough. And then when it comes to, like, the crimes and stuff like that, I like researching stuff that I don't already know most of the facts about. I haven't heard a million times on other podcasts, so... Well, I won't say the name here, so that way no one can research it and we don't spoil what what the next Krakow tale is, but have you... The name is Alexander! Fair enough. I see how this is going to be. How rude. Disrespectful. I have never. Okay, you're not going to say the name, but... But you know what the next Krakow tale that I'm going to read, or at least the name of the person involved in the next Krakow tale that I'm going to read. Is is that something you're familiar with or no? Is this a new one? No, it's not. I've never seen... That. Oh, wonderful. Oh, shit. <laughs> There's a twist ending. Oh, no. That no one saw coming. The twist is that Alexander did it. The twist was it was me. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and I'm on the run. The twist was the victim was me and I'm a ghost. Bum, bum, bum. So you weren't lying when you said this is how you get ghosts. Basically, I'm speaking from experience. 
All right, so into today's story. So when I was writing this up, I, I came up with the name The Failed Filmmaker because it really, the, a lot of the story centers around a film that was trying to be created. And today's story really talks about just how far someone can and will go for their dreams. But as you'll see, there is such a thing as going too far and being unforgivably horrible with what you do to try to realize your dreams. So I will say... I am all for supporting people following their dreams and sacrificing stuff in their lives. I am not for what happened in this story. We could preface all of our stories with that. Pretty much. Pretty much. So this takes place in East Pennsboro Township, which is a suburb of Pennsylvania State Capital, Harrisburg. It's, I think, like half hour away from me maybe 40, 45 minutes, something like that. But Harrisburg is kind of located pretty much in the center of the state, but a little south, but it's pretty much dead smack in the middle. Across the Susquehanna River from the city is Enola. It's a quaint little town right off Highway 15 in Cumberland County. The Enola Rail Yard has been in operation since 1905 and until the 1950s it was the world's largest freight yard and not surprising at all the town was founded around the rail yard and there is an urban legend that they named it intentionally to spell alone backwards so people wouldn't settle there understandable (laughs) it's such a pennsylvania thing (laughs) they're like we don't want people here leave us alone (laughs) within this stereotypical small town it's there's this quiet little neighborhood with this small ranch house it's one of those neighborhoods that was the perfect place to settle down start a family low crime friendly neighbors you know clean perfect suburbia type area randy peck uh this is randy with an i was born in norfolk virginia Her mother, Nancy, took her daughter and left an abusive relationship and vowed that Randy would never witness abuse again. I didn't see too much about what type of abuse. Was it physical, emotional, psychological? But there was some sort of abuse in the home. And then Nancy raised Randy as a single mother. But this meant she worked two jobs, sometimes three. Uh, She also put herself through school. But she worked really hard to give Randy a happy and healthy childhood. And her parents also helped out. They actually, they offered way more than she accepted. She wanted to really do what she could for her daughter on her own. But there was a great support system, a good family, and all that. Randy loved music, dancing. She tap danced. She would sing along with musicals. And then she actually got into playing instruments. She played the flute through high school. And she was the drum major for three years in high school. She even competed in like drum major competitions and stuff like that. Uh, It was something she was really passionate about. And 
also her mom's work ethic and, you know, everything that her mom kind of instilled in her pushed her to excel in her passions. She had a passion for music and band. She had a passion for her education and, you know, being strong and independent. So she put herself through college. She earned both bachelor's and master's degrees in speech and language pathology. I had to slow down because that's a mouthful. I don't, I'm not exactly... Yeah, I'm not exactly familiar with what that is, but fair enough. <laughs> so a uh, speech pathologist is someone who works with uh, trying, I, I, from what I understand of what she specifically did was to work with people recovering from some sort of affliction, whether it be a disease or trauma, accident, etc., to talk again. To Ah, fair enough. Yeah, how to actually get the... the le- learning to speak again. Yeah, learning to speak again, um, working with how your your mouth and vocal cords and your brain all work together to communicate. So she earned both of those from Bloomsburg University, which is uh, in Pennsylvania. It's, if I remember, it's Northern PA, but I forget, forget where exactly it is, but it's in Pennsylvania. So she also, through high school, um, you know, after school, weekends, summer vacations, and then same through college, she would work multiple jobs and saved as much money as possible. Having seen what her mom went through, trying to single income, take care of the family and everything like that, she wanted to make sure that she never had to worry. So she just worked really, really hard and, you know, saved money. And she was able to buy a home by herself at 25 in 1999. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. Like when I was younger, I didn't realize what all was in getting a mortgage and a house and all that stuff. And then as I grew up and had to get a mortgage and a house, it's scary. Responsibilities, how terrifying. Uh, adulting's the worst. Let me tell you a really scary story. This one you're not you're not ready for here. Adulting. Being an adult. Bills, mortgages. Ah, the rent's due. I thought you were gonna say taxes. You can't get that scary now. Oh, taxes. That's a little too far. You can't just blurt out taxes like that. Yeah, the whole audience is like cringing and crying in a corner right now. Our podcast is over. We just lost our whole audience. (laughs) Can't say the T word. Uh, She bought her home in 1999. And then in September of 2000, she married Brian Trimble after they dated for five years. Brian was a very mild-mannered, easygoing computer tech kind of a what you might consider a typical geek he loved tech gadgets and had a huge uh love of horror movies unfortunately brian got a very terrible diagnosis from his doctor uh they found out not too long after they had gotten married that he had multiple sclerosis so if you Anyone who is unaware, MS is a disease of the central nervous system where basically your immune system attacks your body. Um, It attacks the nerves basically between your brain and the rest of your body. So it is incredibly painful 
it also affects mobility, vision, and speech, and can even get as bad as seizures, and sometimes it will even lead to death. So it is a, a terrifying disease, and there is no cure for it. So... Uh, he, you know, they found this out and the diagnosis was devastating. Brian wanted to continue his life, same pace, same ways as before. He wanted to change nothing, but Randy became really protective of him, his health, his lifestyle. She wanted him to take care of his doctor or, oh God. She wanted him to take care of his doctor. Yes. Yes, he's taking care of the doctor. Yes, this is this is how this works. I'll be right back. I've got to take care of my doctor. Can you tell this was my first day back to work in like a week and a half? No, not at all. <laughs> my brain is just... My brain no worky. My brain never worky, so I mean... Oh no, I'm turning into Krakow. Uh, yes, the transformation has begun. Where's my juice? <laughs> so she wanted him to take care of himself and to follow his doctor's orders. This created a rift in the relationship, kind of drove a wedge between the two of them. You know, she wanted him to really, really change how he was living because she understood how bad this disease is. And he just didn't want to hear it. So, Brian worked in IT. I told you he was a computer geek. Uh, it was for a health insurance company in Pennsylvania. And pretty much from the moment he met his work colleague, Blaine Norris, the two were best friends. Two peas in a pod. Everyone said that they would sit and talk about horror movies and just geek out all day long. They, like I said, had this huge love of horror movies Blaine's lifelong dream was to be a director of a horror film. And Brian's dream was to be a cinematographer. He already owned a ton of photography equipment, video equipment, microphones, pretty much the whole shebang. And he wanted to get his professional cinematic debut. He he was a hobbyist. He would, you know, take photos all the time. He would shoot videos and things like that. But it was all just him doing things by himself, whereas he really wanted to be involved in a film. As they would sit at work, they would, you know, spin tales, talk about their dreams. But they decided to write a screenplay together. And this screenplay became the film. It's called Through Hike, A Ghost Story. I actually looked it up. A through hike is when someone hikes the entire length of a trail from end to end in a single trip. It's, it's more for like the longer trails. We are going to talk about the Appalachian Trail, which goes from down south to up north, like pretty much the whole East Coast. But the movie, kind of a similar concept to the Blair Witch Project, but taking place on the Appalachian Trail. The official description... As friends hike through an abandoned coal mining town, they inadvertently release the spirit of a murderer who has been trapped for 150 years. The spirit relentlessly stalks the group of friends. Uh, understand. Very, very solid work there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was actually able to on one of those. Um, it wasn't the Wayback Machine, but um, one of those ar internet archive sites, I was able to find the original website for the movie. <laughs> so this movie is actually out? It's a thing you can watch? I will tell you no. 
Shame. Later, I will tell you more details about it. But there are some clips available online. Well, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say my my theory on this, but let's just say we have two people that we're going to make a movie, a horror movie. This is also a true crime story that does not typically have a happy ending. The movie that they made is not available to the public. I am concerned. You should be. But I have a feeling you don't know why you should be concerned. Why should I be concerned? Obviously, it's a a true crime. So something bad happens, but you don't know who something bad happens to. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the something bad is, and you don't know why the something bad is. Understandable. Continue. (laughs) In the very beginning... Blaine had arranged for an investor for the film. They, you know, they held auditions. They you, they were going full bore on this. And they wanted to impress the investor. So they gathered the cast and they did a, a photo shoot of official headshots. Brian took all the photography, did everything, and then they sent it over to the investor. Now, this was a legitimate film investor. And when they received the headshots, they immediately pulled funding for, uh, they cited concerns of quality because the the headshots from the person who was going to be the director of photography on the film just looked like photos of people that anybody took. Just, yeah, it's just not, it's not something you'd expect from a photographer. It's just like if you took your cell phone and took a photo. Once the funding was pulled... Blaine and Brian decided, we're just going to fund this ourselves. We are not stopping. We are not pausing. We are just going forward. And Brian went to Randy and said, can I take $5,000 from our personal savings account and put it towards the film? She said, absolutely not. As, As one would do. In the past, Chris has been like, hey, we have a friend who a little bit down and out right now needs $150 to pay his rent. And yeah, sure. It's $150. That's fine. We're talking five grand. Yeah, that's not just a number you throw around unless you got like Amazon money. Yeah, like you could you could buy a used car for $5,000 that takes you places. Yes, that's how cars work. They take you places, but it's a little more complicated than that. Do we need to explain how cars work? <laughs> I will pull up. Vroom, vroom, beep, beep. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's how, exactly how cars work. Let me just throw away all these automotive magazines and manuals that I had up that I was going to read to you because vroom, vroom, beep, beep just basically sums it up. You're welcome. I taught you something today. <laughs> but yeah, she refused. So not only was, you know, first of all, she was a very pragmat- pragmatic person uh very logical wanted to save money so they had a good life then there was brian's health concerns and they were trying to have a baby like they wanted to start a family and that is not cheap (laughs) at all so she said no this just drove the wedge even deeper between the two of them she was he thought she was being overprotective and now she wouldn't spend their nest egg to fund a passion project you would think that like there there probably is something like this and, and you're gonna you're gonna prove me wrong here in a minute or or be like hey what about this but there, isn't wouldn't there be like a thing that if, if you had a disease or something like that and you didn't know how much longer you had that would fund 
a little passion project like that that you could do. Maybe. I never really looked into that. Kind of like the Make-A-Wish thing, but for anyone. But for adults. Yeah. Yeah. You Maybe. think it would be something like that where it's like you can do one thing, anything you want. You want to direct a movie? Okay, here's everything you need to make a movie. Yeah. Well, you're wrong that I was not going to bring that up because instead, Blaine funded the movie himself. <laughs> Blaine sold his house, which was interesting because he he <laughs> married with a little kid and sold the house and they moved into an apartment maxed out all of his credit cards and basically did everything that he needed to do to get this movie funded. This kind of put their friendship on rocky terms. Brian wasn't a partner now. And it's like, this was their dream, but he's not putting anything towards it. He's not making these same sacrifices. But finally, the big day was coming. The movie was going to start filming in... Uh, the first week of August of 2002, they were going to hike the Appalachian Trail with all the equipment, with all the crew. They would camp along the way, do all of the necessary shots. And as the cinematographer, Brian was going to spend a week on the trail. But his doctor said no. And Randy was absolutely livid, said, you cannot go. Your doctor said you can't go. So with his disease, the trip would have been incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. And then also he would have no medical care if something happened, if he had a seizure, if he had a really bad physical episode. So she said, absolutely not. You cannot go. And I can, I guess I can understand how he would be upset because he really wanted to do this. However, being a wife to the beard, if if he was really sick, say he had some detrimental disease like this, and he's like, I'm going to go hike the Appalachian Trail for a week, I would do the same thing. I would say absolutely not. Imagine if Bobo was incredibly sick and in pain and suffering and then was like, I'm going to go out in the woods and go survival mode for a week. You act like I haven't had similar experiences with the dragon before. Not exactly <laughs> like that, but you act like I haven't had something very similar happen before. You know, like like being being sore from being sore from work and then immediately being like, I'm going to go do cartwheels in the backyard. <laughs> and no one is surprised. <laughs> So he did end up staying home, but again, their relationship was already on bad terms and now it's getting worse. But when Brian told Blaine that he couldn't make the trip, Blaine was like, can I at least borrow your equipment? Can I at least use the camera, the microphones, all that stuff? But again, Randy said no, and I don't blame her because that's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of equipment. Mm hmm. Yeah. I, I know, and it kind of hurts because uh, I was looking to see like top five cam DSLR cameras or whatever. I was like, let me let me look and see what I might want to eventually save up for. You know, if I continue doing photography, they they range into several thousands of dollars, and that's not 
including the lens. Mm-hmm. That's just basically half of the camera. That's just one photo camera. Mm-hmm. We're talking, in addition, microphones, mixers, all of the the power. We're getting close to a million dollars in equipment here. I don't know if we're getting close to a million, but it's it's up there. I mean, I feel like you could very easily, depending on the type of cameras you had. True, because I know there are movie cameras that are... I'm not even talking like Hollywood level cameras. I'm just talking like normal person could save up and buy that are 10, 15 grand easy. If you were a professional photographer, something you could buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 wasn't. <laughs> so she said no. Blaine was very upset. So, you know, now he didn't have his director of photography. He didn't have any any equipment to shoot the film with and that it 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 really put their friendship on rocky ground but he refused to let it stop him of course one of the things you'll notice in this story is repeatedly bad things happen or negative signs some people would call it you know there was a sign maybe you should stop this movie what i see is a whole bunch of signs being like hey this movie doesn't need to get made hey stop what you're doing yeah well you will notice he doesn't stop as with most stories that we do go mm-hmm. yeah well on one hand it is it's that thing of following your dreams making them happen but there's there's got to be a point where you stop and you're like wait yeah several things happen to prevent you from doing something in a row like that you should probably stop Well, instead, he purchased all brand new equipment and shooting was going to continue on schedule. With what money? Again, just more credit cards, more loans, like any possibility he could get sold like everything he could to fund this movie. This man has more debt than anyone in the United States. At one point, I saw it was twenty dollars to $25,000 of debt just for the movie. That doesn't include all of the other debt of living expenses during that um, time. But uh, first day of production kind of starts rolling in and there's another sign. Cracko, you ready? Uh-huh. The lead actress breaks her wrist and can't film. This film was cursed. <laughs> it was. It was. But they had, I guess, like I know in theater it's an understudy, but they had you know, a backup. So they had the backup actress come in and uh, play the part. So <laughs> they just they just keep going. Speaking of speaking of that. Something similar happened recently uh, for New Year's. We went to a local theme park. They have their New Year's Eve thing. Uh, they do fireworks and everything. There's You can still ride the rides and stuff. They have parades. The park's decorated with Christmas lights and all that. Did they Did they drop, did, did they like drop a ball or something? They didn't this time. I, for some reason, I was thinking they did last time. They have a, well, it's a, it's a sky tower. You can get in. It goes up and spins slowly up to the top. So that way you can kind of see the entire park and the surrounding area. And then it slowly lowers back down um i wanted to say they'd use that for the ball one other year but they didn't this year (laughs) in a city near me lebanon they 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 drop a loaf of lebanon bologna well in georgia and i forget where exactly in georgia but they have the possum drop they they that used to be a real possum but then they didn't drop it from high but like eventually for safety reasons they used a stuffed possum in a little cage and just like lowered it gently from city hall (laughs) their whole thing is the possum drop 
I was like, I, I, I gotta go see the possum drop at least once in my life. I think you do. I think you do. The whole reason for me doing this, they were supposed to have like Christmas themed shows that they did in the theater and everything. The, the, they didn't do that because the, the main actor was sick. And it just so happened his understudy was also sick. Oh, no. So they didn't have a, a main character for, for the show. I, I can see how that could put a little bit of a uh, wrinkle in the plans. It was like, what, what are the odds that you and your understudy get sick at the same time? Because things like that, you're in close quarters with people all the time. It's just like a daycare. It's like a big Petri dish. Germs everywhere. Theme parks are daycares, confirmed. <laughs> you're not wrong. All right, so back to the story. So they continue on schedule. And the first day of production was riddled with technical difficulties, both audio and video. But Blaine refused to stop. Surprise. I guess part of it was new equipment. Part of it was user error. And, you know, he had never directed a film before. He didn't really know what he was doing. So at the beginning, it was a little rough. But eventually they said that he did come into his own with the film, with directing, etc. But the the week long shooting, it was long hours, grueling physical labor, labor. They filmed and hiked along the trail. It was not, you know, just I don't know if you know what the Appalachian Trail is like, but it's not just like a nice smooth sidewalk. You know, you're going up and down hills. There are embankments. I I can imagine. And then, you know, they were filming. There were it's a horror film. So there were death scenes. There were all these different types of most likely running. Yep. Running away. Uh, I know that there was a scene that I saw where a girl was uh, drowned by the ghost so she's like down in like this creek and it's like real rocky and stuff like that so you're like going up and down these rocky sides and stuff like that i want to see this movie so bad who, uh, what kind out of all the horror movies i have ever seen i have never seen a ghost drown someone it's just like Ooh, go to the water. Well, no, like she's down in the water and he's like up at the top of the hill and he's like waving his hands or whatever and she's like just using like i guess ghost powers to drown her below him i want to see this <laughs> that is one of the scenes and i will send you a link to the documentary i watched that had some of the scenes in it <laughs> i can't wait to figure out why this movie isn't available because then i'm like i want to figure out a way to make it available i need to see this movie <laughs> so the the shooting itself like i said long hours but then on top of that Blaine every night would be in his tent watching the dailies and got minimal sleep, high stress. They said as the week went on, he was getting more irritable. Not exactly the the greatest of company. Yeah. He also mentioned to cast members that things at home weren't going well. He didn't tell them that he was in massive, massive debt, but he noted that his relationship with his wife, Wendy, was on the rocks. So the final scene that they shot was a vicious stabbing scene, which we'll come back to later, but it was accomplished by stabbing a watermelon. Blaine did this himself, and it was one of those ones where like, they don't show the actual... Like they're not zoomed in on the actor with the 
the victim, it's showing the shadow. So it's like a creative way to get around like the effects and the the stuff. So you just see him stabbing this watermelon over and over and over again. Shooting wraps, Blaine goes home and finds that Wendy took their young son, Mason, and left. So in addition to the financial issues of selling their home and moving them into an apartment and racking up over twenty thousand dollars in debt she had she thought he was cheating on her with one of the actresses in the film this was not true but it was just one more layer on the cake so she left also none of this is funny but well there are some parts about the, the the documentary or the movie that are funny but why, why did I just imagine the, the kid being like, Mom, why are we leaving? Because Daddy's in the Appalachian Mountains stabbing watermelons <laughs> with no. There, there's another no context quote from the podcast. Mom, are you OK? Because <laughs> Daddy's stabbing watermelons in the mountains. No, just drink your Kool-Aid. Oh, no, not the Kool-Aid. No. Co-workers had noticed that Blaine and Brian's friendship kind of changed around the time of filming. And then they also had said that Blaine really had trouble returning to a regular job, you know, that boring nine to five after he directed a film. He directed and shot a film. He was like a rock star. He was in charge. He was powerful. He's a filmmaker. He's a filmmaker. And... You know, then he came back and they said you could tell he was struggling to adjust. He wasn't happy. And in addition to all that, he was really struggling to edit the film. So he had all of this footage. I mean, guess he has no experience in editing film <laughs> or anything. How'd you guess? It's just a wild guess. I don't know how I nailed it. Brian and Blaine reconnected. They made amends and they decided they were going to to continue to work on the movie. Brian was going to help edit and things started returning to normal. Until they weren't. Well, I was just going to (laughs) say January 10th, 2003. So movie was shot August 2002. So August to September to October to November. Okay, so five months later. Uh, On January 10th, Brian went out to dinner with a friend while Randy was working. She actually worked both of her jobs that day. So she left in the morning, came home later in the evening. But when he returned home, he found her on the garage floor covered in blood with an extension cord wrapped around her neck. He immediately called 911. He told the police that he called out to her. But got no response. He immediately called and he said he did not touch the body. House was ransacked. And the first officers on the theme thought, first officers on the scene thought it had been a robbery gone wrong. But as Detective Joe Landis entered the crime scene and looked around, he knew it was staged. He was a seasoned detective. He had seen many burglaries in his time and this did not match. In addition, upon examination of the body, It was not a typical robbery gone wrong. It was initially a strangulation was attempted, but didn't seem to work. And then the killer used a fillet knife to stab her 27 times. 
And this goes back to our discussion of crimes of passion versus things gone wrong. Exactly. Exactly. So it was brutal overkill. It was very personal. It was very personal. Mm-hmm. They did find the knife on the floor near the body as well. And it was not from the house. Some scenes they go and there's a knife missing from the butcher's block or something like that. Like this must have been brought to the scene immediately. It's a crime of passion. First suspect is always the husband, the spouse, the family, etc. So Brian was at the top of the suspect list. But again, he had a solid alibi. He was having dinner with a friend at a restaurant. So multiple people had seen him there. Uh, he had been on um, CCTV all of that stuff. So they were like, all right, but they interviewed friends, family, and they weren't really able to get an obvious suspect. So they decided to keep an eye on him, but they continued to dig more. So they like he had an alibi. He probably wasn't the dude. But, you know, they're like, well, we'll just we'll just see what happened. And it's a good thing they kind of decided to do that because he now everyone grieves differently. Everybody has their own way of dealing with loss, but he wasn't acting like a grieving husband. He immediately moved out, sold the house, took a leave of absence from work, changed his appearance. He spent their savings on stuff like a big screen TV and video game consoles and started dating really soon after her murder, which seems odd. Just a little suspicious. The police were like, this seems odd. <laughs> Just to kind of maybe dig in, see what what might be going on. They would just like drop by from time to time, be like, hey, got a couple more questions for you or, you know, wanted to see if you remembered anything else. And his coworkers, after the fact, mentioned that every time that happened, every day after the police visited, he would act really weird. He'd be in and out of the office. He'd be really distracted. Nobody really knew why. Nobody knew what had happened. They just knew that he was acting off. They had a another interview with him where Detective Landis asked Brian to recount that night again. And this time... He said that when he got home and saw her on the floor, he went to see if she was okay. Uh, you know, he checked her pulse. He shook her and everything like that, which is inconsistent because originally he said he didn't touch the body. And now he said he was there. He touched her. He would have had blood all over his hands. He probably would have had blood on his clothing, his shoes, everything like that. And that kind of that inconsistency raised a red flag. I know that, you know, as you remember things, especially with a traumatic situation, your memories do change sometimes. But this was a very big leap. It wasn't, oh, you know, I called out, hey, Randy. And then the next time, oh, I called out, hey, honey. Like that's that's a, a mild inconsistency. Uh being across the room and not touching her versus kneeling next to her and shaking her are two very different things. And that's like two entirely different stories. That's, that's yeah, something's not right here. Yeah. So raised a red flag and police approached district attorney Skip Ebert for a warrant to tap his phone and search his computer history. They found a document that Brian had sent to Blaine called How to Commit a Murder. Uh, okay, let me guess. It was for movie research, right? <laughs> uh, 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, that obviously moved the two of them to the top of the list. Blaine's alibi for that night had been that he was out to dinner with his girlfriend. Police viewed CCTV and found that his story didn't match. They supposedly met at 7.30, had dinner, etc. But they didn't meet until like nine o'clock that night. So (laughs) they brought him in for a second interview in March. And during this interview, they asked if he thought that Brian could have killed his wife. Blaine told them he could never kill someone. But then he followed it up with something that Detective Landis, who, like I said, was a seasoned detective. He had been on the force for years. He had never had someone say this to him in an interrogation room. I could kill someone if I had to. Why? That's not that's not something you want to say. Yeah. Even if you really didn't do it and you're joking, that's not the place to joke, nor is it the time to joke. No. That's when he moved from a person of interest to being a prime suspect. They started tearing his alibi apart. Uh, They interviewed his girlfriend and she said that they had talked on the phone. I guess she was running late from work and said, you know, it's going to take me a little while to get home, get changed and all that stuff. And he's like, oh, okay, well, then I'll meet you later, yada, yada. Uh, And then they start digging, start getting more and more. And then they get a letter in the mail. It starts out with, I am Randy Trimble's killer. And I don't have the full letter. I only have some snippets from it, but it said things like, since the police haven't talked to me, I know they're barking up the wrong tree. And then it was signed by Trooper. So not quite sure what the meaning there is, but the letter was meant to redirect them to try to be like, oh, yeah, you're on the wrong path. But the investigators saw right through it. They knew that this was... Uh, just another key, another red flag that they were they were about they were finding the the truth. So they called Brian back in, and this time they used a different approach. They said, "We know you did not kill Randy. We know this, but we know that you know who did." Interesting. Well, Brian Brian cracked. He told them that. Blaine killed her and then asked if they would take the death penalty off the table before he went any further. They talked to the district attorney, got it all cleared, and they said, "Okay, if you tell us everything that happened, we will take the death penalty off the table. And that's when the whole story comes out. Brian hired Blaine to kill his wife for $20,000 of the life insurance payout. Her life insurance policy was worth $100,000, so it was a 20-80 split. Prior to the crime, they planned everything out. He walked Blaine through the house repeatedly, you know, where to walk, where to go, where the valuables were to kind of like, you know, ransack the house. And, you know, when she comes home, she comes in this door. This is how, you know, this is her habits. This is everything. So they went through this for months before the murder. What else happened is I had said that originally it was supposed to be a strangulation. Well, when the cord went around her neck, she was able to get her hand between the extension cord and her throat. So she was holding it and he couldn't strangle her with it. And that's when he took out the knife and started to stab her. And then this kind of made me And why kind of, I mean, it did, it made me really cry that as she laid there dying, she whispered a prayer 
because you know she knew what was she knew what was going to happen. I mean, she was stabbed twenty seven times. It's Brian was immediately arrested, put on you know he was arrested, hearing yada yada. Blaine was still free. They got an a warrant to search his apartment, and they found a receipt for a local store where he bought latex gloves, black sweatpants, and a dark hoodie. And then on his credit card history, they found a knife matching the murder weapon. They were able to arrest him. Both men accepted plea deals. So in full cooperation, they got life sentences instead of the death penalty. And they are both still in prison. I believe they are in different prisons instead of being together. That would kind of make sense. Yeah. One was in, it was, it's like more Eastern state versus central. But yeah, so they are both paying for what they did. I don't want to say any good came from this. This never should have happened. But something beautiful has come from it in that Randy's mother... Nancy, while obviously she can never get her daughter back, but she used this to create Randy's House of Angels, which is a nonprofit organization in tribute to Randy. It was started in October of 2011, and it is to help children and families either exposed to or who are victims of domestic abuse. And the organization also has a bunch of programs. Um, You know, obviously they want to get people into safe environments. They want to get them help and, you know, mental health treatment and things like that, because abuse does destroy your mental health, as well as um, they hold like camps and clubs and stuff like that. And they also hold an annual 5K, which is Randy's Race, a 5K run walk for hope and courage. And over the years, it has raised over $423,000. That's awesome. Yeah. So like I said, it is it is something that never should have come to be this way, but it is doing some really good. At least there was some good that came out of it. But like you said, it's bad that it had to go that way yeah and uh everything i've seen so there is a huge section on the website it's randy's house of angels.org that her mother wrote about randy and how she was it sounds like she was one of those just like shining beacons Mm -hmm. you know one of those people that just like lights up a room she's very caring very you know just seems like seems like she was a really wonderful person and it's really sad that this happened over a really stupid movie a movie that the universe was saying several times stop this exactly exactly like i said there are clips in the one documentary i watched and it not only was it like kind of a a lameish story not the greatest script but also, like I said, the quality was really poor. I bet they didn't even use like uh, proper sound editing either. You know how they uh, they like isolate the audio for like the voices and then they go back in and put in like footsteps with like Foley editing and stuff like that. I bet they didn't even do that. No, no, no. no. They just used the straight up microphone off of the camera. Prob- I, I believe they did. I believe they did. But to answer your question that you have brought up a few times is the reason the movie is unable to be viewed is because it is in evidence storage in central Pennsylvania. 
So I'm coming to central Pennsylvania to try and get into the evidence storage and let them let me see it. I Got just it. imagine you being like, dear police department, can I watch this movie? I hear it's really bad. I'll do it. Please don't. Or at least don't include my name in it when you when you do that. I'll include your name in it. No, 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 no. Better yet, I will show up in a suit with an empty briefcase. No, no, no. A briefcase with like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in it. And then I'll just walk in and be like, hello, yes, I would like to see the cursed movie, please. <laughs> My friend Mo, she lives at this address and here's her phone number. Um, she said I could. I did all my chores and she said I could watch the movie. <laughs> she said I could. I have brought snacks. <laughs> then I opened the briefcase. <laughs> I just imagine you have like the most adulty, high end, like travel coffee thing, but it's filled with juice. It's a Louis Vuitton mug. <laughs> And like an Italian three-piece suit. It's a three-piece custom-tailored Armani suit. <laughs> With your PB&J and your juice. I would like to see the Chris movie. I specifically went to the most expensive hairstylist I could before I came there. And then there's just CCTV footage of me getting arrested. <laughs> and then I can cover it on the podcast because that's a true crime. Yes. Even though it's not technically a crime to just walk in and ask to see evidence. Yes, it's weird and suspicious, but I don't think they can directly lock you up for that. I could be wrong. I, I think they can only arrest you if you break into <laughs> Oh, to So this. you're saying I should leave out the part where I was going to walk over to the door that leads to the back and start jiggling the handle and say, let me in. I want to see the movie. I'm, pre I'm pretty sure evidence storage isn't at like the the normal police area thing like if you go to the police you department like i know that and i wouldn't just show up to a regular police department i just imagine you being in the wrong town <laughs> you're like in i'm in the i'm in the wrong town and it, i'm not even at the police station i'm at the fire department <laughs> show me the cursed movie um sir this is this is the fire department let me see the movie sir this is a wendy's <laughs> and that is the employee restroom sir sir this is a wendy's one we are closed Two, that is the employee's only restroom. Three, why are you in an Armani suit? Um, did I say cursed movie? I mean, I got lost and we'll take one cheeseburger. <laughs> Just one cheeseburger. Thank no Frosty? Mom didn't give me enough money. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that is the crazy story of Blaine Norris and Brian Trimble. So the person that I work with used to work with Blaine and they they did say he was a little weird. That's how I would describe you and me. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much I want to put onto that one, but they did say he was a little weird. Uh, also was was a really big fan of Fight Club. I, I don't know what that actually adds to the story, but that's like, those are the two things that I know of from the person that knew them. Anybody was wondering, <laughs> but yes, that is the story. I feel weird saying at the end, at the end of like most of our stories, like this was a good story because it, it usually isn't a, a good story, but yeah, you always use interesting and then anxiety Mo sits here and is like, oh my God, he hated it because he called it interesting. Yeah, because it just feels weird hearing about a lady getting stabbed 27 times and then going, this was a good story. You could tell me I did good work. There we go. See, you, you see, you should know me by now. I struggle with English. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com.
And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Cracko, you ready? Okay, bye.